I feel like in the community there's always the finger pointers. They're pointing at the parents and, ah, it's the parents, and they're pointing at the politicians. No matter who's in power, they'll be blaming the politicians. My thing is we're pointing too, but what we're doing is we're pointing at ourselves and saying we can, we can do something. Can't change the world, can't win the wars, can't stop famine, but I know... And in terms of, say, doctoring health-wise, there is a number of families that will not be coming to see Nina because suddenly they're having warmth, pyjamas, good night's sleep, and we've stopped it there. It's the fence at the top rather than the ambulance at the bottom. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld and made an association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. In 2018, the New Zealand Labour government introduced the Child Poverty Reduction Act of 2018 to halve child poverty by 2028. What we know from most recent statistics is that over the last two to four years, income poverty rates for children have remained largely the same. If we look at children in 2022, approximately 328,000 children were living in income poverty using an inclusive measure of poverty of family income being about 60% of median income in New Zealand. And we know that poverty has huge impacts on child health. The most recent Cure Kids State of Child Health report showed that bronchiectasis, which is permanent damage to your lungs from recurrent chest infections, is six times as high for your low socioeconomic families compared with high socioeconomic families. And you are twice as likely to need hospitalisation if you're from a low socioeconomic position family than if you're from a high socioeconomic position family. So we know that poverty causes illness and poverty really kills people as well. On this episode, I'm bringing on Bernie Halfleet, who is one of the masterminds behind Give a Kid a Blanket, which is a charity organisation based in the Auckland area that helps families with some of these material needs that they are going without, things like giving kids blankets, clothes, toys, as well as food and just general support for families as well. So I'm really excited to bring Bernie on this episode. Thank you so much for coming and I'd really like to hear about where did Give a Kid a Blanket come from? Thanks Nina, great to be here. Interesting to hear those statistics. And yes, we started Give a Kid a Blanket. And when I say we, it's my partner, Turtle, and I. We're both artists, and it's actually come out of a social art practice. So even though now it's a registered charity and working every day, it's also a living artwork. Social artwork aims to instead make things for a viewer, instead bring that viewer in on the work, make them part of the work, and together work on social change. But how Give a Kid a Blank has started was in response to a coroner's report that said a child had died in part because of the cold and damp housing the family were in. It wasn't a Labour government at that time, but I don't think who was in power really matters too much. It was, though, a government government home. It wasn't sort of a private landlord or anything. No insulation, and that child died. And so we thought, right, we can do something practically about this. Uh, I come from a background of working with kids with special needs, special ed background. So we knew about public health nurses. So we thought a way to go forward would be to simply set up a Facebook page, which was reasonably new when we started this in 2015, ask our friends to give us blankets, and we'd get them to families in need through public health nurses. We always thought that working through professionals was the way to go because they would have clients immediately in need and public health nurses often pick up people that fall through the gaps because they 
pick them up through kids, through schools. Obviously about schools and teachers being vigilant and noticing change in kids or noticing kids that haven't got lunch, things like that. So we set it up, Facebook page, give a kid a blanket, give us your blankets. Woke up the next day and 500 people had jumped on board already, which doesn't sound much these days with social media taking off, but back then it was wow. So we ended up, it was a winter-only project back in those days. We ended up with, I think, 22 strangers offering to be drop-off points in their place. We were just doing it at home. And so people could have the ability to look at a Facebook page, look at their area, say Mount Eden, see the name of someone, just a first name and phone number, get hold of them, drop their donation to them, and then I'd do a, a wide circle of Auckland, pick those up get them out through public health nurses, other social workers, through agencies you were latched onto, and got them to kids in need. Well, not just kids, actually. I mean, the thing is, if there's hungry kids, there's hungrier parents, usually. If there's cold kids, there's usually colder parents, because most parents will go without, so their kids have something. So we, we target the whole family, and we target them very generously with good, new, or excellent quality pre-loved resources, so they're going to last a long time. We aim to give things with a message that is clear that these people are valued because these people are not they and us, they are us. Anyone's circumstance can change. So while we're focusing at the beginning here on poverty, uh, the people we work with now um, through police and other agencies might not be in poverty. Their circumstances might have changed through family harm, recently through flooding and cyclone damage because of COVID, through redundancies. So there's many, many factors that mean people need to be given some support. But uh, I think it's, yeah, I think it's really important to recognise, like you say, that not all poverty is this idea of a chronic poverty, that this person's just been like this, or this family's been like this for ages, is that it's recognition that actually anyone can fall on hard times. And, you know, we need to live in a society where we actually do have some form of safety net so that if you do fall on hard times, that you, you do actually have a chance to pick yourself back up or you've got a community around you that will help pick you pick you up. And I, I feel like increasingly it's harder and harder for people to do this. Do you agree? Or what, what's, your, what's your feeling? I think some people's poverty isn't necessarily about money. It might be lack of family, lack of community. And so for those people, if they're displaced or moved, for instance, sometimes the police might move somebody because it's not safe in their region, or they're New New Zealanders from another country that have come here. To me, that's a poverty too. And I think it's really interesting, the model that you've got with Give a Kid a Blanket. So how I ended up bringing you on this podcast was actually through my very good friend, who's also a police officer. And she told me about what you were doing and your story and how she's like, yes, uh, we should we should get Bernie on the podcast. And I said, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting that with Give a Kid a Blanket, you guys sort of only work with professional groups or people referring to your services rather than I guess like almost like a direct consumer kind of charity you know why, why is it that you guys choose to go through like professional groups rather than direct to the people who need this help? Absolutely so firstly there's a whole lot of absolute grassroots coal-faced professionals like the police the public health nurses, social workers, people in refuges that are dealing directly with people that are in absolute crisis and need right then. And those people are making professional judgments, sometimes on the spot, sometimes in terms of police, they need to capture, not capture a person, but capture that moment and get back to that family with resources to sort out their need, but also get them on side. That's one of the great things we've found that's come out of this is that we have no contact with the people we're giving things to. Through those professionals, though, often it improves the relationship they had with them. So as police are an example, they'll often tell us about how the family will talk to them now, will come out now, how the kids are positive towards them now, because they're returning with absolutely practical and much needed resource. In terms of taking private requests, that's really hard. We do get asked. We have a blanket. No, we don't pay, take private requests, but I will direct people to agencies that we're currently working with in case they're under them. It's always a hard one to say no, 
but I also recognise it's a door to be opened. I don't want to be a person that has to choose between who should and should not have. And also another part of the picture is that the people that we give to through those services remain anonymous to us. I think a lot of charities unwittingly end up making their clients victimised. By, How so? By highlighting them in their advertising campaigns. Poor Nina. Nina's going blind and needs your help. Rather than, hey, we've got people out there that have vision impairment, how about giving us some money to help them? I don't think that people are stupid and they do know that there's plenty of people in the community that need some support and I don't need to throw people in front of them and in front of a camera and, and show them little Johnny looking hungry to demonstrate there's hungry kids out there. That's interesting. That's like side note, not really related to this, but I remember reading about something or watching this video and it was talking about <laughs> when you have those adver advertisements and stuff with, like you say, like a hungry child or whatever. And if you have, if you show a bunch of people like an ad with one child and then you show another bunch of people an ad with two children, it's interesting that most people will, people will give more to the, the, the ad that had one child because people for some reason are more able to have an emotional connection when it's just one person suffering. I don't know if it's because people feel like with one person they have a greater ability to make change for that one person, but then when you have like a, a, a tragedy, a crisis with multiple people who are affected, thousands or something, people don't necessarily have that same emotional connection to helping those people in need. Like how are you finding it with getting help for, could, give, give a kid a blanket? Generally, we've always managed to get enough resources in to get it out. This winter, which is our, we work year-round, but winter was our biggest campaign of the year each year, we did get enough resources in, but far less donations of excellent quality pre-loved. Right. So to be clear, we want new items or excellent quality pre-loved because things have to have that message that people are cared about. I think it's a dignity thing, absolutely, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So this year, far less quality pre-loved. Didn't get rubbish, but just less quality. And I think that's partly because people gave because of the flooding, certainly in our area in the west, cyclone damage generally. And what was that like for Give a Kid a Blanket during those times? It got seriously busy. Yeah. <laughs> but we were really respondent to the flooding first. We were based in West Auckland, so there was a lot of flooding there. Interestingly, of course, you get hits of in different communities. And what we noticed was that often new New Zealanders from other countries, particularly the island areas, when they come to New Zealand, you look for other people of, of their culture and their needs. So you'd get a pocket in the end of the street, for instance, and all people uh, that from Fiji were suddenly underwater as well. So they not only made that big journey here, but suddenly had this extreme circumstance. So we were out there, we were helping with the flood and the cyclone. Recently in winter, we received some funding from MSD and Red Cross to work towards that. But while that was generous, it only goes so far. Getting kids and adults in beds is an expensive business. But the frustration of it was that that money only had to be used for people that were cyclone and uh, flood affected, which was a question I had to now ask on our request sheets. And the frustration was that, and the reality is that we work with people every day that are weather affected. It just happens to be the storms of family violence, the droughts of poverty, and that sort of overcast weather of health issues. But it's there every day. And it might be an analogy, but to me that's bad weather. And so it is a shame that it is easier to get money and support from people for those sorts of things than people that might be in harm's way. It's really hard when it feels like help and support is conditional. Like we have to, we can only be happy with helping people if we believe that they deserve the help because it was not their own fault that they ended up falling on hard times when actually a lot of these people who fall on hard times, it's due to circumstances that were in fact out of their control, but we just don't realise it. I think there's some stuff around relatability and so while 
not all of us have been in an abusive relationship or stabbed or terribly sick, everybody feels like they know what it's like to be cold. And so particularly when we first started in winter, and I'd really emphasise the cold thing, lots of donations came in. Uh, May, June this year, we did our winter campaign. Past it's been June, July, but we thought we'd start earlier to get it out in the communities before that real cold set in. I think we helped, uh, I just note the number of people now, three and a half thousand over that two month period and just over a thousand were noted as being either cyclone or flood affected. So the first response to my mind was quick but very much a band-aid. Now those people have been getting back into more permanent housing and while they've now got a roof over their head, they haven't got resources within the home. So now they're needing bedding. We don't do furniture, but furniture and things like that. I want to ask you a little bit more about the concept of social art. What, what is social art? The idea of social art is that instead of sort of an us and them with an artist's artwork and an audience, that instead you invite the audience to be part of the work. And together you can highlight and hopefully make some social change. So apart from Give a Kid a Blanket, which is a pretty strong example of our practice and is been a living artwork since 2015 would be a work we did as part of Parking Day down in Wellington. A Parking Day is a one-day event run by the council and the Wellington Sculpture Trust where now it's only in Cuba Street but it was in a number of parks around Wellington where they handed over car park spaces to artists and installers to make a statement or do what they wanted to do on the day. We did one called Coffee in a Blanket We'd found out the Wellington uh, soup kitchen was desperately in need of uh, blankets, but also coffee. You can imagine how much coffee those guys go through. Uh, So we went down and we had a car park space that was directly opposite Wellington train station. Turned out to be in front of the main IRD building in New Zealand (laughs) and with uh, eyesight of Parliament. Because we come down from West Auckland, we were sort of working on the fly in terms of not wanting to take too much stuff down. So what we did was we put cardboard down in the car park on the, on the floor, uh, which a number of homeless people would use to sleep on during the day. And we got some cardboard and basically gave people the opportunity to sit with their own little sign and see how that felt to just sit with a sign. We had a sign that said coffee in a blanket. We had made contact with people before and let them know we were coming and we ended up with six months supply of coffee and blankets. But the people that sat down with their signs suddenly saw how the world could change as soon as you sat down. We were there from eight in the morning till six at night so we had the two big commuter runs in and out of that train station. First guy that sat down, I think his sign said something like, we all need some kindness or something similar. It turned out to be a software developer for IRD. So you had these random people? These people came out of that train station and as soon as they saw him, well-dressed guy, they just made like salmon (laughs) up the river and did this big yui and just wouldn't look at him. Lady came along next, very well-dressed business lady, and I explained that it could be a bit upsetting because she might find people ignore her. So you had these regular yeah. people yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sit down turn. to see what it was like yeah. to be essentially homeless speaking on the street yeah. as well, a social there experiment a kind just of thing. Just yeah. sign, just be part of it. Yeah. And I think, and she said, oh no, don't worry. They'll, they'll. And she was crying after the end of 10 minutes because actually everyone ignored her or looked at her with disdain. All these people's signs, they said something affirming, life affirming, but... Yeah, just to be on the other side for a bit. So we had people that missed their buses and trains because they wanted to go away and find coffee or a blanket for us. But that sort of thing. Mm. Why do you think that that sort of experience speaks more into people's hearts than just seeing somebody sitting on the side of the road with a sign saying, coffee? Because they've experienced it. We did a big work called Max and Bella and Friends at New Zealand Sculpture on Shore. It was a work about anxiety and depression. So 200,000 adults have anxiety and depression each month in New Zealand. 
and the work was made up of 10,000 white windmills. They were in a circle that was 24 metres wide and you could walk, walk through it in paths. Now all the people that came to that in the, the conversations we had about mental health and depression and anxiety, that number will resonate with them so much more than a newsreader simply, or someone listening to this podcast, simply me saying it. It will be forgotten. But being amongst those windmills, being there in Wellington with that sign, bringing a blanket in, volunteering, being part of something that's actually action towards social change, I think is far more powerful. Do you think people have forgotten what social change means? and what social activism means? Well, I think there's a lot of people, particularly through social media, want to tell them what it is. So it's important that they hang on to their own definitions rather than necessarily those made up by other people. So it's easier not to get out of your house and do things anymore. So I think like one of the reasons why I did this podcast, Revolving Door Syndrome, is because I wanted to connect with people who either are doing the work or have experienced these systems because I feel like it's really easy for me to make my make my own opinion about what's going on in New Zealand and, and why we've got so many problems in our healthcare system. But I find it really hard to explain it to people who haven't seen it. I, I find it really, really hard. I, I've recently just seen the play called Things That Matter, and it's a, a play based on a memoir written by Dr. David Geller, who's an intensive care doctor in Middlemore Hospital. And I walked away from it thinking, oh my gosh, this is just a beautiful piece of art. It's, it's, it's almost like social art in mm. itself, the way that the play took David Geller's experiences and the patient stories about how, how tough it is being a healthcare worker, but also how tough it is to be these patients or these families of the patients. And I thought this is probably one of the, the best ways of actually conveying <laughs> how important this healthcare crisis is. And yeah, I think I really applaud you because I think having that social art means that you can convey these ideas in a way that will speak to people from the heart rather than just another statistic or another news article. Yeah, I think showing them something. I mean, I sort of get that it's, for some people, hard to wrap their heads around it. And that's okay. That's okay. I mean, for me, because I say it's art, it's art. (laughs) But it's something uh, we're passionate about. And I guess I don't want to lose sight that, like, we're so deeply into give a kid a blanket that sometimes it's good just to put your head above the water a little bit and remind yourself it's still part of your art practice because we're, at the moment, working on a piece of New Zealand sculpture on shore. We've traditionally been in that show every couple of years. It is biannual. It raises money for women's refuge in New Zealand, so the things we like to talk about are um, either directly about their work or the concerns. We've done a lot of work on child abuse and abuse to women. The anxiety and depression piece was there. We've done work there about uh, kids going to school hungry. All those things, so we've got a commission from them to represent them. But otherwise, sometimes it can feel crikey, we don't get a chance to do our art practice, so it's good to remind myself that we're just living it as a living artwork all the time. I was really interested in talking to you about the Women's Refuge piece that you did a couple of years ago with the the maze, if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, yeah, we've done a number of different works, both, both individually and then... Basically, my partner Turtle and I, we're out of the same house, so budgets all come out of the same house. So we work well together, although we're good at different things, so that seems to be complementary. The last big thing we did for them was a maze. It was made out of cargo pallets, like the pallets you sort of see around the street and good firewood. And I think it had from memory about 586 pallets in it. It was a piece that was 30 metres long by about 26 metres. If you're a bird and were able to fly, although we did stick the photo on the entrances to the maze, you ended up working, walking through the word refuge. There were two entrance and exits, so with oncoming visitors either way, you ended up hitting spots where you had to share space and take space or give space to oncoming traffic. It was about 26 centimetres wide, I think, with inside that font. 
the idea with that was to echo what those women are doing every day and about negotiating space, keeping themselves safe, as safe as possible. And having to do that with strangers as well. Absolutely. And the work was called, Why Don't You Just Leave? That is probably the main question Anne Jury, who, who is the boss of Women's Refuge, would get asked all the time. The reality is women take statistically seven times to leave before they can get out for numerous reasons, no doubt. But I think people that are lucky enough not to have been in an abusive situation just think you grab a bag, pop out the door. Well, why do you think people think that? Why do you think people think, oh, these women should just leave? Why can't they just leave? Why do people think that? Well, I think it's because they haven't been in that situation, so they think it's a simple solution. And why isn't it so simple for these women? I think it's an individual question for each woman. I think there's so many reasons keeping the kids safe sometimes might seem um, safe still in that violent place. It might not be a violent place. It might be a mentally abusive place, which is far harder in terms of to go and show a doctor some broken ribs and a black eye over just this person's in my head and it's breaking me. I think what people don't realise is that a lot of people who end up in this situation, they don't end up there overnight. It's usually something that happens over long periods of time. You don't end up in an abusive relationship straight away. Usually the things take time and you, you build, like you say, we build like an attachment to this person and for, for many different reasons, whether it's financial or children or like you're still in love with this person. A lot of, it's, it's too hard and too complicated for us to just ask them why don't why don't you leave? I think it's a really powerful title that you gave that. I think it's um, yeah, and and for some it's their normal. It's the normal they've experienced as children. That's the relationship they've seen between their um, parents, mm. and they've gone on to have the same relationship as their parents. So after recording this interview, I got the opportunity to visit Bernie and see for myself the work Give a Kid a Blanket is doing for the community. Right, so um, show us around Give a Kid a Blanket. Okay, well thanks Nina. I love that you've come out to see us. Um, We'll give you the tour that we'd normally give people. Because what we find is when people come and have a look, uh, it gives them a much better picture of what we're doing. And uh, sometimes there's a few wet eyes, which is nice too. Looks like there's a lot of organised chaos here. Organised <laughs> chaos, yeah. It's been a busy day, so as you've come in, you can see there's some police officers here ready to pick up some stuff. Uh, the police, Waitamata police, particularly um, Family Harm Intervention, I talked to you about. Uh, these guys are from that area, so the uh, same area our mutual friends from. Police and public health nurses out here. Uh, they're about the only ones we do food support from. We do big food parcels, we aim to do ones based around uh, uh, an equation of uh, three good meals for three days for a family of two adults and two kids and then we calculate either side of that and then we try and do some stuff if we have specialty stuff. So today, for instance, there's a request the family at Halal, so we need to make sure we can cover that. Another one's for uh, someone with a child that's actually in hospital at the moment and staying with them, so they need some food to keep them going. So again, you've got to go, OK, they're only going to have a microwave or a very small fridge to operate out of, but it'll give them a bit of comfort, and of course they're not wanting to leave that situation to go and get food. Where do you guys get the food from? The food comes in three ways. It comes, we get some stuff from Kiwi Harvest and from Fair Food. So that's rescued food. It's food that would normally, most of it would go to landfill. So it's all of saved food. Um, some of it isn't. Some of it's given to them from companies and stuff, but it's pretty close to use by date. So that's fantastic, but it's also very random. So each week at the moment, we spend between five maximum of $800 buying pantry basics to top that pantry up. Yeah, food is health, um, and if we don't have food and we don't have health, we really won't have wealth. 
Yeah, that's right. We're lucky we get some uh, really quality baby food from a local uh, manufacturer that makes organic baby food and they, they give us that. So that's great, particularly for those uh, public health nurses that come in. Do you want to take us for a spin around the... Let's go spinning. So um, all the stuff that you see in the clear plastic bags are requests ready to go out. And so they'll just depend. These are quite small ones for us. So if it's a bigger family, you might find the bags, say... Uh, one of four bags for instance so these ones are um, let's have a quick look couple of adults an 11 month old kid so that'd be these two bags are for them just to get them through their bedding I think it's um, really great that you guys um, allocate your um, packaging based on uh, you know the demographics of the people that we're requesting it for absolutely everything everything's very specific I'll show you You've even uh, got girls' pajamas, you know, size three, Absolutely. four, five, six, seven. As you can see on this, we never ask for clients' names. They remain anonymous to us. And we ask these things that I've talked to you about, age, gender and sizes of kids. And the size things, I've never met a kid that's the size of their age. What adults are in the house. And, you know, what's uh, we can add other things like bedwetting stuff probably sheets, any health issues present that we might be able to help with in terms of what we supply. So you might have a kid with asthma on this one, cerebral palsy, no woolen blankets please. So that's this is a very sophisticated operation Absolutely. you've got here. Absolutely. Um, and what's the sleeping arrangement? Because I think I've said to you that you know the kids will be sharing beds with siblings often. On a given day, how many parcels do you reckon, like food parcels, you guys are putting together and sending um, out? Within the week, we do about 30 to 35 food parcels. So that's not huge numbers compared with some uh, food-only places, but they're very generous parcels. So um, we try and give stuff so that people aren't hungry in a day's time. Because in the end, if they had kids, they'd probably keep coming back or keep asking through their service provider. Everything's through a provider. Up here, this is the room that Turtle and... Um, our eldest daughter Angela work in a lot and, and some other volunteers but you'll see all the stuff that we get now that's handmade by people so all handmade quilts crocheted and knitted blankets all that's all handmade you know our thing is that we want people to not only uh, be warmer be well fed be healthier we want them to get a clear message that they are uh, valid cared for by the community they deserve quality goods as well. Because they are us. So the handmade stuff, I think, sees that more than anything else. You see more there. All these. I mean, I'll just... Oh, it's like a fun, big fun Lego set. Yeah. And look, I mean, look at this. This lady bought this in the other day. Wow. So she's, she's made a ton of these. But this is a quilt she's made. And what wow. I love about this is they, they wanted to get it in the community and they place that trust in us that that's where it'll get. You know, I find that... In terms of give a kid a blanket, hugely affirming for us, let alone the kids that are going to get incredible handmade quilts with weird boggly-eyed monsters all over, you know. And these things, I presume in my head at least, that they'll be a family heirloom. That's not something that's not going to be hung on to. Hot water bottles uh, are a big thing. Like We try and give nothing that you have to plug in, so there's no costs handed on, so you're not getting a heater or... Um, electric blankets that you're just not going to plug in and turn on. It's a bit mean, it's like, you know, putting a big cake in front of a diabetic or something. So we do these and then uh, people make Barbara who's here today and her sister and their two daughters and volunteering today. Uh, she makes covers with them. Some of these, the ones she's made are actually what she does is the woolen blankets we get with tears. She lines the inside of the outer cover so they have a keep warmer longer. If we buy we mainly buy duvets and so uh, duvet inners, covers we're lucky we got a good deal on those but covers are often more expensive than the duvets themselves but you can pick up second hand covers. Second hand duvet inners often not very nice looking you know you want pristine I've seen some horrible stains or ones that look like an old tea bag that you'd find. Yeah I think I need new duvet covers and <laughs> new, new duvet inners. <laughs> But the thing is, you know, like we've had ones with like blood stains and stuff and they've been washed and if it was yours and you know it's clean, that's okay. It's not like being a goat sacrifice or something, you know. 
Um, but if it's yours, that's fine, because it's yours, you know it's been washed. Same with pillows, we only do take new pillows, we'll buy new pillows, because I've seen so many that look like the Shroud of Turin and Drool. And that's what people are donating to you guys? Yeah, people will do that because I believe that most people are still are absolutely giving with kindness, but some people have a weird, what's weird to me, weird thing in their head about if you're struggling you should be really happy to accept anything, which to me is total bullshit. I mean, it's just like if you're struggling you should be lifted above the crowd and held high and given quality things to know that's not to be your place, it's just is your now but it doesn't have to be your ever. So, yeah, we, we sort of, we'd sort of measure it on if we wouldn't give it to our kids or grandchildren at Christmas, why would we give it to someone else? So we've got a lot of clothing at the moment too because we were lucky enough when a couple of uh, productions, Power Rangers and One of Us is Lying, season two, shut down, they gave us a whole lot of their props and clothing. So if you can get into those production companies, that's fantastic because often they set dressing, so out of uh, one of us lying... We're reducing so. waste. This is all about sustainability yeah, well, as well. reducing waste as well. But, um, you know, that was a show that was filmed in Mount Wellington but set in a college in the States. So there was lots of really cool young people's gear and, and now somewhere out there in West Auckland there's 80 kids with cool backpacks that make them look like they're American and stuff. But it's all good stuff, you know. And it's stuff kids wouldn't normally have access to. And lots of warm jackets. Uh, we try and do cleaning products, all that sort of stuff, as much toiletries as we can. Period products, we obviously try and keep up the whole range. Pads, menstrual cups, reusable stuff, um, which is great because that gives people real choice. Māori and Polynesian aren't so keen on cups generally, but we've had some social workers from those organisations like run workshops for their women to try and um, see if they can get them using them, just because of the cost thing. These particular ones we have have got a 10 year life expectancy, so that's saving a lot of money. I've got a public health nurse getting us condoms, because that's another thing. Police particularly sometimes have said, oh, you any condoms? Because, you know, if you haven't got money, but you still want to be sexually active, obviously. It's um, a human right. It's a human right. So it'd be good to be able to provide people those without them... Um, either A, not being able to afford them, or uh, or have... Look, even just getting to somewhere like family planning might be a free visit, but actually getting there, the cost involved could be beyond some people. We've just got a whole lot of these cool toys, which are sort of um, learner-based toys, so you've got to make them up and things, science-based ones. Up the top there, you'll see lots of toy boxes we've made up. So the toy boxes, we had um, police and nurses coming in saying either the kids haven't got any toys, or we've had to uplift a family and get into a safe place. Or maybe the kid's got a, in hospital and needs something, so we make them up into sort of age and gender, or hopefully appropriate packs, so they've got some stuff to do. I'm enjoying the massive Barbie dream home. Massive Barbie dream home. And actually what was wonderful with that today was uh, we were given the Barbie dream home, and we've been waiting for a special story with that. But finally today someone gave us... Um, Solo mother Barbie. <laughs> and so, so there's Barbie and Kelly. Not a Ken in sight. Um, and honestly, I sort of say that with a smile, but so many of the mums we note are on their own. And I think, actually, whoever gets that house, I'd give them one if they only had a mum. And I think that's nice to know that people can be strong on their own too. They don't necessarily have to have a, a dad or a, another mum or whatever. That, um, there's some amazing strong women out there. So, Speaking of strong women, at that moment we were joined by my good friend and community cop who actually introduced me to Bernie and give a kid a blanket. Oh, Officer Hassel. Oh, <laughs> Helen, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> no, how's it going? How's her? So we're welcoming um, Officer Hassel on the podcast today. Uh, con oh, sorry, Constable Hassel on the podcast today um, who's here at Give a Kid a Blanket to receive a parcel for um, some members of the community. Kia ora. <laughs> I'm not on the podcast either. <laughs> Unfortunately, she wasn't feeling too talkative that day. You're an essential member of the community, Raina. Yeah. 
you'd like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your background and you and Turtle's background and why you guys have embarked on this social art sort of trajectory because there's lots of artists in the world some of them making more money doing different types of art but why is it that you guys have embarked on social art and trying to make social change? Yeah I mean yeah because we've made zero money. And I filled in the form last night for Sculpture and Shore. It said, where, is your, where are people that are likely to see your work apart from at Sculpture and Shore? And honestly, apart from some, there's some stuff in little private collections, there's some external stuff in Waitakaru, which is a sculpture, Aberorium, out of Waikato. But the real answer is probably locked up in, in, in storage, because <laughs> that's what happens. Why? I can't really tell her story for her, but certainly we both have known different aspects of life growing up. We're both adopted, and I think and that is the place we ended up connecting in, on as adults and getting together. That gives you a huge understanding of the other person. I think there's some, and there'll be adopted people listening to this, completely disagree with me, I've got to say, but my feeling is there's some very common stuff about loss of family when you're adopted, when I strip it down, I feel like we're just animals and adoption or removal from your family that nature intended you to be with is very traumatic. Can I ask how old were you when you were adopted, when you were taken from your um, birth family? Oh, I was taken from my birth mother, I think about two seconds out of the womb. Right. And then I had a hernia of the umbilical cord, so um, it took a month month for me to be adopted. Were you adopted into the family, as the same family that you lived with your whole childhood or did you have to experience being moved around a lot as oh, a child? Okay. No, okay, so I think these are the things that inform me where I get to my social art, art practice and for both of us too. So no, I was adopted into the same family I grew up in, no other siblings, just a mum and dad and parents that were my peers' grandparents' generation. So I think I was adopted in 1964 and and often couples, I think, waited and tried to have children well into their 40s and then ended up adopting. And I think for many, we were in some way a Band-Aid on infertility because even though they now had a child, infertility was still an issue. And so... I'm not sure my parents could ever hear it when they said, because we couldn't have a child of our own. But if you analyse that statement, it sort of is about having a child of their own, which you clearly are not. Is that what you felt like when you were growing up? Uh, no, when I was growing up, when I was young, I you're surrounded by this wonderful myth in a way. Although I've got to say I was always told I was adopted but you're told what their version of adopted was. So you're lucky and your parents did the right thing. And I mean, my parents had this great story about my mother being young and she was the school ducks. And so they thought she should go on to do wonderful things and a child would hold her back and how the, the birth father was a musician and da, 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 which it turned out to be all absolute bullshit. It was just stuff they when I got my birth records I think it 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 said on a girl of average intelligence was the only <laughs> that's comment. interesting that that would be put in the birth record at all that was kind compared to some of the birth records for a while there we helped uh, well for 10 years run an adoption support group for adults that we started in and well I started with some friends in Ponsonby and I think some people had comments like young sluttish girl and things oh like that oh my goodness oh dreadful oh, things the 60s, dreadful wow. things were written about these young women and like for me if I've got any anger at all towards uh, birth family it would be to my grandparents because they had children obviously of their own and yet they still encouraged my birth mother to go off to Auckland and have the baby and sayonara sort of thing yeah yeah and then 
when I first left school, I was in a, a film crew for a couple of years, in a, a contract film crew, and we did the news a lot. So I was very exposed to every day was different, and I was very much the lowest on the ladder, but got to um, meet prime ministers and and Desmond Tutu and people like that, but and then also like prostitutes that have been held up with their with their boyfriend in a in a batch while the police surrounded them and people living in poverty. So within a two year period, I got to see a real kaleidoscope of what community was, and then. After a brief time as a as a storeman, while I was waiting to find my feet, ended up naturally just progressing to working with kids with intellectual disabilities. And I've worked with kids and adults for 35 years now with disabilities, intellectual disabilities. And as part of that, of course, I've worked with kids that were not disabled in any way when they were born, but were harmed. And I think that's the thing, we're very aware we have high statistics in New Zealand of kids killed, one every five years, sorry, five weeks, that's, around that's crazy. 14 one women every five killed weeks. every year, one woman killed, 14 women killed every year in domestic violence. And while those statistics are frightening, what I reflect on really is how many people are just living in hell. And, and those are the ones that we've come to talk about with our art. Yeah, I mean, in my practice as a paediatric and emergency doctor, I've seen some of the worst worst cases of inflicted abuse on children. And that's, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. Mm. Me as one person, I've seen quite a few cases of um, child abuse, like really significant kinds of child abuse. But again, that's just the ones that make it to the hospital. I'm sure that there's a lot that's maybe not so intense, but is chronic and damaging and will have lasting effects well into adulthood and may, may never recover from if we don't <laughs> give these people the help that they need. And it, it, it just, I think that the whole child protection and state care is really an interesting topic for me because how do you draw a balance of keeping children with families, their biological families, versus making sure that they're in a safe, safe place somewhere that's not in these unsafe households? that we've decided that they're unsafe, basically. And how do we draw that line and how do we make sure that these kids are in a safe place? What, what, what do you think, based on sort of your experiences? And uh, well, I think that you always have to be children first. So they're the ones that really can't speak up for themselves from infants right through. But if you're going to remove people from houses and families, you've got to put the work into trying to see what the issues are for the families and trying to help them change themselves. I think a, just a cut-off of nothingness is no good for anyone. I think we were talking before about before we started this recording about your, your story with adoption and that you didn't really get any follow-up once you'd been adopted out, really, apart from a few plunket visits here and there. Is that right? Yeah, I think for all adopted people, really, that, that to me it's a, a government placement. And of course, it gets to be a point when actually adults can come and talk to, to kids. You're not always little. The best of my knowledge, and certainly my partner's knowledge, some Plunkett visits was it. And it's not good enough. Yeah. Uh, so I was recently at the campaign launch for Whakarongo Mai um, Voice, which is for Rangatahi and children in state care, trying to give them the ability to advocate for themselves through this non-government agency. It was sh quite shocking to hear that some children who are in state care, so not even ones that are adopted, ones who are in state care in a foster family or several have been shipped around to several foster families, might only get seen by a social worker once a year, once a year. And you just got a question. We talk about the royal inquiry into state care, yes. right? And we talk about these historic abuse that has happened in what, the 60s and 70s for people who are in state care. And we talk about it like it was like history, like it was that that happened back then. It's, that, that was a different time. But 
I think if we're continuing to have this system where we don't engage the young people who are in state care and we don't ask them what's going on and don't give them the ability to feel like they have a voice over decisions that are being made about them, about where they're going, about who they're going to be staying with, we're going to lead to that same problem again, aren't we, of these children not having a voice and these children being in really vulnerable situations with adults who are making decisions for them and perhaps doing things to them or for them that they didn't ask for. Yeah, and that's why it's really important we've got to listen to the adults that are now speaking out because while we would hope that kids would feel like they could tell us, talk to us, if we're returning them to a place that is unsafe, maybe they'd be too scared to. I mean, if you were going to disclose abuse... You'd have to be confident that you weren't going to be said, thank you very much and (laughs) see you later and be sent back there. Yeah. Because you might feel like you'd be in more danger. Yeah. It's a a tough one to... I guess I'd hope that if a child disclosed abuse that then they were immediately removed from anywhere. Yeah. It's it's really hard really hard I I don't know what the answer is but I'm just I'm worried that we it's really hard to know when it's really hard to know whether keeping children in the families and supporting the families is better or taking them and putting them in other families anyway this is this is a very hard topic (laughs) I mean what um, have you learned from um, talking with other adults similar to you who've also experienced being in stake here or being adopted? Oh, I think, well, there's some general stuff around. I think when you have, not necessarily in the front of your brain, but always in the back, had that rejection at birth, which is a, which is really, as I say, being removed from everything that should be glued to you as a small person, then it's hard to shake off that you're not worthy of things. So that, and I know lots of people have it, but that imposter syndrome that surprise that people do like you, do find you worthy of things, still catches me. Because that's a really big message. And I think you'd find if you looked at, and I don't know this off the top of my heart, but statistics of people in prison, people in drug and alcohol programs, you'd find that if you said, put your hand up if you're adopted or have not grown up with your family, many, many would. Certainly, I remember one guy, when he finally connected with his brother, they'd been separated at birth. The brother had spent a lot of time in jail, now went back and worked with other prisoners. But what brought him around was realising how many of his prison peers were adopted or had grown up in state care. Another guy was at drug and alcohol. I think there were seven in the room, adoption came up, five of them were adopted, which was a really eye-opening experience for him. I think we have to understand that if we want to tackle the issues of crime and the prison population Mm. and what have you, we have to be looking on ourselves, looking in the mirror of what are we doing to these young people and these children by putting them in state care and not actually providing care while they're in the state care and what are the outcomes and what are we trying to achieve? Because if, like you say, all these people who are in the prison systems were adopted or in state care, then there's got to be something wrong with the system and we really need to address that. And I don't know, and although my best friend is a cop (laughs) and I love her to bits and I want her to have a great career and um, be supported, I don't know that having more, having tougher sentencing and what have you and more cops on the beat. I don't know that that's how we're going to fix the prison problem as well. No, well, I think if you look at statistics in the States or in New Zealand with the amount of Māori Polynesian people in prison, I think if they were European, they wouldn't necessarily be there. I think if they were European, they wouldn't have been pulled over in the first place. If they were European, they wouldn't have been pushed so hard that they reacted badly, maybe. And what was it like bringing it back to when you were in Wellington doing that, that coffee blanket thing with the, the, the cardboard yeah, sign yeah. and all that? How, how did all those people feel they were sitting there? Do you, do you feel that they could understand what was actually happening for people who are homeless or of low income? Because when you look on the street of people who are homeless, there's a, there's a lot of mild overrepresented in, in that population of people. 
Yeah, I think so. We, apart from being by the main IRD building, we're also by McDonald's and so Turtle had tapped into their free Wi-Fi and was posting constantly through the day photos of people. And the reason we found out the guy worked for IRD was because half an hour, or about an hour later, he wrote under a photo of himself, yeah, we all need some humanity, and said to his friends, I suggest you come down and do this. So certainly it touched him. And it touched those people that, I remember a young couple like, oh, we've missed our train, but we just needed to go and get you some coffee for, yeah. So through your work with supporting other adults who've been through adoption and estate care and all that, what is it like for a lot of people? I I mean, it, it probably doesn't happen for everyone, but what is it like for people when they do end up, say, meeting their biological family for the first time? Is it, do people sit around and kumbaya and say, oh, yay, we finally reunited? Or is it a bit more complex um, I think it's very that? different to my hand up and say we haven't done that sort of support group in that for many years now. So, but adoption's always present in my head, I guess, because it's part of who I am. People talk about a honeymoon period, potentially. For me... I can only tell my own story, I guess. It was wonderfully grounding. When I first made contact with my birth mother, it was by phone. You could sort of have a... I guess you had a choice, really. You could either cold call once you tracked them down. I used electoral rolls to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, electoral rolls are all in the library. Yeah, OK. So I was lucky that they... Well, they my their surname was um, a slightly different spelling of a, re, of a regular name, which was handy. And they were from a small town where the family had remained. And so, oh, actually, when I think about it, I tracked, what happened was I tracked who turned out to be my grandmother down first because my mother had married, so I'd got another second name. And so I rang my grandmother up, only time I've ever talked to her, and basically completely lied and said that my mother had gone to school with my birth mother (laughs) and was back in town or she was coming to town and would love to get in touch with her. So have you got a number for it? Yeah, and she's, oh, yeah, here's a number. And so, yeah, and so I rang her up. Yeah, and that was special. Yeah, I rang her up and the first thing she said was, I'm sorry. So that was very special. And because she, uh, yeah, and we talked really easily. And then after some time we got to meet and that was equally special. But in the end, she got to a point where she didn't feel like she could have time with me anymore. And I think that's because, while I'm reflecting on that little baby wriggling around taken from the mother, of course, that's a huge thing for a mum to have a child taken. And often that's a choice that hasn't really been theirs. Maybe now, I've got to say, adoption's changed a bit, but back in 19, late 50s, early 60s, it was very much driven by parents that didn't want social shaming in their little communities. So you got women that are dealing with not only losing a child, but really having their own family pull the blanket out from under them. And I've met my birth father too. I think the reality is that... Your experience of being that child's father is probably, for some, as long as it takes to ejaculate. And that a woman has nine months with you. So I did have nine months with my mother. So sorry, that might sound a bit crude, but that's the reality. Some of those guys might not even know that someone was pregnant. I think it's important to recognise the the trauma that is being adopted out or you know, willfully or not willfully being adopted out on the, the child, but also on the on the parent as well. That must have been really, really, really hard for her as oh, well. Oh, absolutely. You and imagine, it, often from small towns, often got sent to Auckland and lived with a local doctor for a week or two and were basically tro- often stories where they were treated quite badly in terms of they got to do a lot of cleaning and stuff because they were seen as dirty girls. And again, that's that whole male-female thing. Women can become pregnant, men can do their thing. See you, you later, know. bye-bye. Yeah, see you later. And I think the thing too is that I've, I know people that are adopted that just don't want to find birth parents or and 
And that's fine. That's their story. And I don't also want to negate the fabulous adoptive parents that are out there. And this is the trouble often that, as I say, I was always told I was adopted. I was always told those positive things. And for many people, I think they get stuck with feeling very torn between seeking uh, their roots and not wanting to hurt the family they're from. So there's all that stuff too. But not people, not all people were adopted by good people. And I know people that were adopted by monsters and they were never checked up on. What's next for Give a Kid a Blanket and how can we make the world a better place? Well, I think my thing is that we're running a race that we're going, never going to win. <laughs> we're sort of dog paddling <laughs> in the ocean, but we're keeping our head above it. At least we're doing something. I think that in terms of Give a Kid a Blanket, our work is about getting community on board and as a community doing something that's quite immediate for that other part of our community. You know, often I will get schools and parents bringing kids in to donate. Schools are great to get on board because, of course, they can have a whole school thing. But sometimes I'll hear teachers or parents using it as a bit of a teaching for kids about this is about how lucky you are. Look at these kids, they've got nothing. But look how lucky you are. And to me, that's not the approach. My message to those kids is how lucky you are to be part of a community that's loving and giving and could well be there for you when you need help because one day we might all need that uh, help with dignity. I talked at a a private preschool in Takapuna and the lady said, oh, can you tell these kids where the blankets are going to go? And these were three-year-olds, so, you know, you don't want to give them too dark a pitch. So I said to them, oh, you know, how many of you guys got brothers and sisters? And they're like, oh, yeah, brothers and sisters. I said, well, how many of you like to get in bed and sleep with your brothers and sisters at night. Oh, none of them did that. They all had their own beds. I said, well, the kids we give blankets to, because it's very common that we'll have uh, three kids in a queen-size bed rather than every individual kid having a single. They like to sleep with their brother and sister because it keeps them warm. And there was sort of a deathly silence for a minute, and then this little fellow at the back went, my mum and dad sleep together. (laughs) (laughs) And then... They suddenly, all these arms were shooting up and they all had mums and dads or mums and mums or an Uncle Harry on Thursday that was cold. Or They were all sleeping together. But what I loved was I just knew that night those kids were going to go home and say, are you cold? Because that's all they saw, that sort of purity. And for us, I feel like in the community, there's always the finger pointers. They're pointing at the parents and, ah, it's the parents, and they're pointing at the politicians. No matter who's in power, they'll be blaming the politicians. My thing is we're pointing too, but what we're doing is we're pointing at ourselves and saying we can can do something. Can't change the world, can't win the wars, can't stop famine, but I know... And in terms of, say, doctoring health-wise, there is a number of families that will not be coming to see Nina because suddenly they're having warmth, pyjamas, good night's sleep, and we've stopped it there. It's the fence at the top rather than the ambulance at the bottom. And sometimes it's something as simple as that. Now, that's not me saying it, even though I'm saying it here. That's anecdotally back from those professionals because while the people we help do remain anonymous to us, that anecdotal feedback comes back and it is changing people's lives, just in a little small way. Sounds like incredible, incredible work and sounds like very hard work. It's very rewarding work, but it is what it is. And how can people help with Give a Kid a Blanket? Ah, great question. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say that. No, long. if they're in Auckland, how we work is in, in winter we work Auckland-wide with a number of organisations and out of winter we focus on the West with the police and the public health nurses and who else we got there? Family Action, they're a refuge counselling service, Māori Women's Refuge, uh, Plunkett, Itipuere, they look after young parents. Uh, pillars, they look after kids whose parent or parents are in prison, so we look after that. And they keep us busy all the time. And how you can help is either you could look us up, give a kid a blanket, is a very nice website. 
lots of information there of places you could actually take excellent quality uh, donations to. Or you could make a financial donation, very helpful. I think where I was heading before when we were talking about winter was that we had to buy a lot more things this winter because some forever chasing grants, but that's very time consuming. Or they could just, look, I say to people, buildings are brick at a time. So even if you've got nothing, just tell somebody about it. That's Follow us on Facebook, and we're trying to build that Instagram page up. <laughs> Get on to those young people. Yep. <laughs> so I'm going to, just enough time for one last question. So what is the most influential piece of art that you've ever seen? I've seen some cool things, but... When I was a kid, there was a Van Gogh exhibition at the Auckland City Art Gallery. I think I was 11. And my mother took me to that, and it just blew me away. I'll always remember that. So there were a number of paintings, and they were all fantastic. But there was this painting of these uh, boots, and they were very moving. So I've seen heaps as an adult, and heaps that I'm far more informed about, and heaps by friends that are artists, but... It was great at such a young age to recognise something so fabulous that I realise now that the world recognises, but at the time they were just paintings. What was special about these boots? They were just sort of punched out in paint, really. Like the, I know what it was. You could feel where the artist was. Yeah, you could feel where his hand had been and pushed paint around with that brush. Magnificent. I mean, if I go to shows, especially painting shows, I like to get really, not really close to a painting, I like to go and stand where the painter would have stood. Like, There's always great stuff about standing back, but go and stand where the painter was, because that's where they've been working. The individual brush, brush strokes. Yeah, just being, being there, suddenly seeing it just in front of you. Not the whole work, maybe, if it's a big work, but just those bits and just, yeah. I guess it's like our art. You go and stand in the shoes for a split second. Thank you so much for coming on Revolving Door Syndrome, Benny. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to tiriti or waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Thank you.